The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world. In America, the rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome to Cars and Culture on Sirius XM and episode 128. I'm your host, Jason Stein. Formula One arriving in Las Vegas last week had multiple storylines. The return to the city, the new track on the Strip, and the expansion of F1 in America, a force that seems to have no end in terms of popularity and appeal. It also had one significant new attendee to the race, a first-time visitor to the city who's also getting comfortable in new surroundings as an automotive CEO. Her name is Lynn Calder, and she was not only new to Las Vegas this past week, she's a new automotive CEO of a startup that's about to show up in neighborhoods across America. Only a handful of women have ever run an international car maker. Only one has done it with no previous experience in the industry. But Lynn is making a go of Ineos Automotive. And if you haven't heard of the company, you will. Not only a powerhouse chemical company, it's the owner of two European soccer teams, the performance partner of New Zealand Rugby, the British entry in the America's Cup Racing, and a one-third owner of the Mercedes Formula One car. It's also the proud developer and manufacturer of the Grenadier vehicle, and more automotive models to come. The Grenadier is Ineos' answer to the Land Rover Defender, but more modernized. Plenty of models are on the way, including an electric vehicle and at least three others. Ineos doesn't want to be just another startup car company. It's also putting all of its muscle behind the making of a brand, and a profitable one at that. The story of the automotive development is remarkable. Hatched on the back of a British pound several years ago in a London pub called the Grenadier, an automotive project was the vision of Sir James Ratcliffe, Ineos chairman and CEO. But it's not just another automotive project. The company's in it for the long haul by developing a vehicle that's every bit as capable as it is sustainable as a business. Lynn Calder wasn't in automotive, but earlier this year she was tasked with running the automotive division. She has automotive in her blood, her father was a mechanic in Scotland and an enormous car lover. She's got her hands on the wheel of an amazing project. Today from Las Vegas, she tells the story, just hours before the Ineos Mercedes-Benz would take the track at the new Las Vegas Grand Prix. Hi, I'm Lynn Calder, and this is Cars and Culture with Jason Spine. Probably not the place you would expect to meet me, I'm guessing, on your first trip to Las Vegas. Here we are uh, on the eve of, uh, oh, on the day of the Formula One race. Um, but it, what a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for being on the program. Oh, thank you, Jason. Pleasure to meet you too. What do you think of Las Vegas? Let's start there. I mean, and, you know, anybody who comes from Fife in Scotland must, <laughs> must have a certain um, impression of Las Vegas before you arrive. Before you arrive. It's, it's and a how long... does that marry up with... <laughs> It's a long way from Fife, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can't believe I've got to my grand old age and I have never been to Las Vegas. I've been to lots of cool places. But yeah, this is a surreal experience this weekend. I guess Las Vegas is always a pretty surreal experience, but I think Formula One is kind of really amping it up. So uh, yeah, it's a crazy place. It takes it to another level. Absolutely, yeah. it does. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about why you're here, um, you know, Formula One being being here and of course the support of the team and uh, Ineos' uh, involvement with the team. What, is it, what does it mean to you to be here uh, for the race? What does it mean to the company? Yeah, I think it means quite a lot to the company. Um, I mean, obviously, it's it, it's the first uh, race in Vegas for a very long time. It's a marquee event that's got global reach. Um, we are a super proud owner, uh, as, as a third owner of the Mercedes Formula One team, and we are absolutely here to support and root for our, our team to win. Mm. Um, and I think for Ineos Group as a whole, you know, we, we started getting into sport in quite a big way sort of six or seven years ago, um, and across a number of different sports, with Formula One being one of them. And I think it's been a really big um, brand ambassador for the company. We spent 20 five years, we turned 25 years old this year mm. as very much business to business. And, and that's changing now because we've got some consumer businesses. But I think the sports partnerships are really helping us get a little bit of awareness of, of, of the name Ineos. And the sports partnership comes from a real 
uh, earnest um, affection for sports that comes from your chairman. A hundred percent. And I mean, that started you know, many, many years ago. And in fact, it's really sort of kind of gone through the, the DNA of, of the company since its inception. But certainly for a long time, I mean, yeah, Jim, our, our chairman, uh, Sir Jim Ratcliffe, he is an avid sportsman himself. Um, you know, he runs marathons, he loves adventuring, he loves cycling, um, and he loves watching sport. He loves soccer in particular, um, cycling. Um, and so that really has, you know, he, he has fostered um, a love of sport throughout the organisation in terms of us all looking after our own health and well-being and, and, and being active. But that's really now kind of come into the, the ownership and sponsorship of sports teams um, where we can really sort of get into the psychology of, of winning. Mm. And uh, that, that's been a, a really cool thing for the INEOS business as well. And in fact, uh, having a collaboration uh, with many of those teams brings that pulls that spirit forward but let's talk about some of those teams so a couple of football clubs yeah right? um, rugby uh, yeah right a very significant rugby team yeah one that most would know well the all blacks, all blacks yeah um, there's the Tour de France winning cycling outfit um, there's the British America's Cup entry and then there's Formula One. Oh, and by the way it's a chemical company yeah <laughs> right I, I mean it's it's it just sort of transcends so many different pieces of life and society and culture more than anything else. Yeah, and I think, you know, of the 25 years, it was almost 20 of, of chemicals. And, right. um, you know, it was very business to business. We kind of often joked that we were the largest company that no one had ever heard of. It was a 65 billion euro company, yet you know, because we were selling mainly commodity chemicals, mm. we didn't have a brand, we didn't have a, a differentiation really, we were just quite good at running businesses um, s safely and profitably. Um, and, and really over the five, last five, six years, that's really changed. And I think sport was the beginning. And now you see us entering into consumer businesses. We have three consumer businesses. There's a fashion brand called Bellstaff. There's Ineos Hygienics, which started off as a hand sanitizer business during COVID mm. actually where we kind of recognized that we had the building blocks of making hand sanitizer at a time when people really needed it and we could build a plant really quickly. So we did that in 10 days and then we gave a lot, a lot of hand sanitizer to hospitals in the UK. But that's now since morphed into a, a hand soap business and a detergent business and a cleaning products business. Um, and then of course, I'm sure we're gonna talk about Ineos Automotive of course. quite quite a lot. So three consumer businesses and mm. the sports partnerships are really starting to help drive the, the knowledge and awareness of, of those consumer businesses. And the collaboration with the Formula One team is important because uh, we all know that technology transcends anyway. And if we talk about pulling down into the automotive side, but there's also uh, the element of hydrogen production vehicles. Yep and the advancements that are happening with Formula One that will be used on the automotive side. I'm guessing that, that in the one-third ownership of, of the Mercedes team, that had to have been an element that was a, dr a driving force. Uh, I mean, I think we, we, we started with Formula One before we were super mature with our car company, actually. It really mm. did start as a sports interest. Okay. Um, and, you know, we've got, you know, um, relationships with Mercedes. We've also got a really strong relationship with BMW. I mean, BMW supply right. the, the engine. You're in what line I think six. is a fantastic right. straight six uh, inline uh, turbo diesel and gasoline engine. Uh, gasoline in the US. Um, so, you know, we've, we've kind of chosen to work with high quality partners across the, the, the board. Where I think the Mercedes relationship has been really interesting for Ineos Automotive is actually in our manufacturing facility, um, which we acquired from Mercedes. So we've kind of effectively in 2021 acquired a, a, an almost ready-made, um, you know, um, very, very impressively run facility this for manufacturing facility. in, in Hambach. Mm. So, you know, I, I think had it not been for the Formula One relationship, mm -hmm. we probably wouldn't be sitting here with Hambach. And I think without Hambach, we wouldn't be sitting here with cars on the road. So I think that's been the mm. most important facet of how the relationship has worked between Mercedes and Ineos. And for those who don't know, that's a facility that's on the French 
um, German border that uh, basically has been used to produce smart vehicles yep. up to this time, which is where you are uh, building vehicles now. I'm going to get to the building of the vehicles, but I want to talk about your history first, because um, I know that um, it's been said that you're, you're definitely a... Um, we say in America, car gal, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what they'd say in Scotland, but that's. Uh, but there's a long history here, and it goes back to your father. Mm -hmm. And he was uh, working on trucks into his 50s. He was a mechanic. But I want to know, did you grow up with a strong interest in automotive, or was it just there for you? So it was by osmosis more than anything else. Yeah, it, to be fair, I think it was probably more the latter. Um, I think my dad, in hindsight, would have loved if I had been kind of hanging out with him in the garage, uh, <laughs> getting my hands dirty. And, you know, I, I have got to be really honest and say I'm not that kind of car gal. You know, I can't strip down a vehicle and rebuild it, uh, probably much to my dad's disappointment. Um, so osmosis for sure, but what it drove in me was a real interest in driving actually. Mm. So I look back with some regret now that I didn't learn more from him because there are lots of things I'd love to be able to do with cars, like own old cars and know what to do with them. That would have been amazing. Um, he did teach me how to change a tire. He was like, you know, no daughter of mine is not gonna know how to, t uh, to, to change a tire. Um, however, yeah, I mean, I think osmosis, um, huge part of our discussions always were yeah. about cars. Um, and as soon as I could drive, which in the UK legally is 17 years old, you know, I got my first driving lesson uh, on my birthday and I just wanted the freedom of being able to drive. So we really bonded over that. Um, I, I love driving. I love driving fast cars, off-road cars, any cars, to be quite honest, or most at least. Um, and yeah, definitely that was, that was very much fostered by him. And in fact, anecdotally even, when your father passed away six years ago, Harry passed away, you were looking through photo albums and you found albums that only had cars in them. Lots Is of albums, yeah. lots of albums. Every car he'd ever owned. Uh, I think he always remembered every number plate of every car he ever owned. Um, and yeah, he was much, much less interested in having people in his photos. Interesting. Um, so yeah, he was, he was a true, uh, you know, it was a true passion thing for him, um, a, a true guru when it came to cars. You had Haynes motor repair <laughs> manuals all over the place as well. It was funny actually, when I first joined Automotive, our uh, after sales guy said something about a Haynes manual and then he kind of said, he started to explain what it was because obviously he, you know, he knew I was new to Automotive and I was like, don't worry, you're, I'm not starting from that far <laughs> back. I know what a Haynes manual is. We had plenty of them going around. And because my dad owned so many cars, uh, you know, so many varieties, uh, he, he needed a lot of manuals. You went away, uh, you got an economics degree, um, you started working in the oil and gas industry, you went to Canada, you went to Norway, you were headhunted um, by a private equity firm uh, looking for investment opportunities in the energy sector. And that's how you landed where you are now. Correct. Yeah, I think it is exactly why I landed where I am now, because I think um, I, I got some fantastic experience working in a Canadian oil and gas mm. operator uh, from, I think, your hometown. Um, and, you know, we um, we did a lot there. But I think moving into the private equity world where we were specifically trying to find companies that we could grow, mm -hmm. actually. So it wasn't kind of a lot of financial engineering um, type of private equity. It was very much growth equity. Um, and so I really cut my teeth there in terms of really understanding all the levers that makes a, a business successful, um, whether that's, you know, the people or the financial statements or the strategy, um, how to, to run businesses really quite lean and efficiently and, and profitably um, and, and how to really look for all the areas to help them grow. And, and I did that for, you know, nine years before joining Ineos. Um, so yeah, I think that I, I definitely credit that part of my career to, to where I am today. But you're in chemicals and you're pursuing a path in that in that direction. But there's one element here. You're you're you've said that you're driven by learning new things, stretching your brain, moving from pro moving something from a project to being a business. And in fact, that's exactly what happened when Sir Jim approached and said well, we have this automotive idea that we'd like you to run. Mm. And I know you didn't hesitate at all, but your father would have been really happy, right? <laughs> I think, yeah, I have moments of thinking he would be super proud. I have moments where I think he must actually be thinking, 
of all the people in our family to end up working in automotive, it's you, because my brother is also absolutely car mad. Um, so yeah, it's, I think he would have a bit of a chuckle about it as well. You were running the composites division when you were asked. What was your first thought beyond, okay, I'll go ahead and do it? I mean, if you're being like, honest. Yeah, my, I, completely honestly, <laughs> it, it was a bit like, what? <laughs> you know, um, you know it, it was almost the last conversation I expected to have mm. um, because Ineos is a really dynamic company to work in. You know, it's very entrepreneurial. Mm. It's, it's, it's unique in, in my experience anyway um, because of how it's structured, because of who helms it. Um, and it's really not unusual to be asked to do something completely different from what you're doing. You know, there's um, examples not just in my career, but all across Ineos of that. Um, and so you have these conversations from time to time and you think, oh, right, I didn't see that coming. But great, here's a, an opportunity to go and learn something new um, and, and go and do something fun and cool. Um, you know, you never have time to get bored in Ineos. But even this stretched that because, you know, I would have expected they would have wanted someone um, with clear automotive experience. And I think what we have ended up with compromise wise on that front is that, you know, I mean, we've got 1600 full time employees mm -hmm. in the business now and almost all of them are automotive experts. Um, there are a couple of us from the wider Ineos that are working in the team now. My CFO, my commercial director, my commercial director is actually Jim's son. Uh, George and we, you know, as a team are really kind of marrying the INEOS culture and how we run INEOS businesses successfully into automotive. So Sir Jim has this love of sport, as we said earlier, also a love of off-roading. Uh, and I want to get to the story of where you've been with him uh, just recently, but we'll do that later. Let, let's talk about the idea of creating an automotive uh, branch of this. I, the, the, the legend is that he loved the Defender and when Land Rover decided that they were going to um, change the Defender, he wanted to pursue a path that would either mirror it or mimic it or do something of that nature. Um, not unlike how actually how the McLaren um, uh, F1 car was originally uh, developed. But there's an opening, he could see an opening and there's a meeting that takes place in the Grenadier pub in London. What happened there? It's such a crazy story. I mean, it's, it's legend in Ineos. It's becoming legend to our story. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's passed on um, second generation to me. I wasn't there, um, but um, I do know what happened. And it is, a, 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 it deserves to be a legend, I think, in a way, you know, it's, it's exactly as you said, Jason, it's, you know, sitting around having a, a gin and tonic in the Grenadier pub in London and sitting, you know, feeling really that it's a great shame that the Defender, as it was, is no longer going to exist and seeing not just uh, something that he was passionate about from a loving off-roading and loving the vehicle perspective, but also actually a, a business idea. There's a gap in the market mm -hmm. for that pure blood off-roader because almost all off-road vehicles have started to go in a certain direction which is away from body on frame, which is away from solid beam axles. And, and he really wanted to recreate, not a, a, a mimic, I don't think, he wanted to recreate a, a vehicle that would have all of that off-road capability, but be super cool and be a bit more modern, refined, comfortable. And I think that, you know, the conversation obviously, you know, grew some arms and legs along the way. Um, you know, the legend is um, it was written down on a five pound note um, <laughs> because in the Grenadier, uh, they, they, they stick money to the ceiling and um, it's, it's kind of part of the folklore of the pub, actually. So, you know, today the Grenadier five pound note is, is in there. And this is about six years ago. Um, and when I think now of what's actually happened for the last six years in terms of the idea went from just a pure idea to being sketches, to being designed, to being engineered, to being the product that it is today, to being manufactured at, mm -hmm. at high numbers yep. um, and, and sold in 40 countries. Um, oh, and we've bought the pub, by the way, as well. Oh. So we now own it. <laughs> I didn't know the end of that story. <laughs> 
okay, so you, you have a place to go drive the Grenadier to to have a drink and spend another five pounds on a, on a pint or something. Exactly. Oh, that's a great story. So when you when you took control of your current position earlier this year, um, how much did you know about about where the progress was on the automotive side, and how long did it take to get up to speed? I think I'll, I'll be learning for a long time yeah. yet. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I took over in um, December um, officially, but I started to get involved with the business around September last year. Yeah. Um, but before that, I mean, Ineos Automotive has got a lot of um, buy-in and interest from the rest of Ineos. Um, you know, we've gone from being a chemicals company, which is, you know, the, the, the bread and butter of the organisation that's, you know, the, the engine of the organisation, a lot, of people, a lot of people have been doing those jobs for quite a long time and, and we know it really well. Um, so to be doing something like this is, is pretty left field it's pre- and, and, and therefore it's pretty interesting mm-hmm. to people. And actually, I mean, most of our senior execs in the other businesses own Grenadiers now. Like they are fully love the vehicle, have really bought into the story. So when you're in Ineos, you know a lot about what's going on in Ineos Automotive. So... I knew the progress, I knew where we were at. Um, I didn't know the kind of um, extent of the challenge, I don't think, to mm-hmm. be completely honest. Um, and every day, you know, I still learn about the extent of the challenge because this is not an easy feat to do what we're doing, to come in as a business who knows nothing about automotive, but then build the expertise in engineering the vehicle, understand how to market and sell it. Right. Um, and you know, moving on to future models as well and actually sort of saying we don't want to be a business that's decided to do this crazy thing and and build a vehicle. We actually are going to make a business out of this and we're going to be an OEM, an automotive manufacturer that will be around in decades to come and that will build a sustainable business. So knew a lot, underestimated the challenge, having a ball. (laughs) Well, and very different than we've watched a lot of other startups get into the space now. And they all go in as one thing, as you know, whether it's Rivian or, um, you know, others through the years. They all come in now as the EV Mm. savior. For a market, at least in America, that's not quite embracing the the Mm. entire uh, notion yet. And in fact, now even in in Europe, there's been a, a pullback on... Um, on, on some of the heavy, heavy uh, regulation mm-hmm. or, or at least proposed regulation around EVs. But no, you're pure gas. I mean, I know you're going to have derivatives. You, we're going to talk about those. Mm-hmm. But you're, you're a hard, fast, rugged, uh, technically superior gasoline engine vehicle. Mm-hmm. What a notion. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think we've ever um, shied away from swimming upstream in Ineos. Right. Um, you know, I think that we we wanted to build something that we think there's a market for. We wanted to build something that people will buy and people are buying it. Um, now, that doesn't mean that we underestimate at all the extent and the challenge ahead on you know powertrain strategy of the future and the transition that will be required to, to to move towards net zero in our industry, we fully understand that. But we also firmly believe that there's a place in the long term for combustion engine vehicles. Um, you're, I was going to say exactly what you said. I think you know if you rewind a year ago, we would have said the US hasn't fully embraced it yet, but Europe has, and we're seeing that really stall right now. And that doesn't mean we don't think that electric vehicles will have a place. Right. We absolutely do. We're building one. We'll come on to that. Yeah. Um, but I just see that there will be a mix of powertrain mm-hmm. required um, in almost every country of the world um, for lots of different reasons, lots of different drivers, government policy, consumer behavior. Um, so I'm very comfortable that we are bringing our, our vehicle to market in gasoline form. So let's talk about where you are now. Um, you're active in 40 markets. Yep. Is that correct? Um, you have obviously the Grenadier um, plus a Quartermaster, mm-hmm. which is the pickup. You have three more vehicles to come in your product plan, at least three more vehicles. And in fact, the EV, which is the next vehicle that's due, 
is in 2026. You're actively working on that. Yeah. I have the product lineup correct? Yeah. So we've kind of said all along that, I mean, I mean the electric vehicle has been under design and, and engineering for, for quite some time now. We're really quite deep mm -hmm. into that project. And for that to come in 2026, I mean, that's now only two and a half years away. Right. So, you know, we're, we're obviously well, well through that. Um, and yeah, we've always said that we've got, you know, at least two other ideas, uh, one of which we have started to kind of, you know, really spend some proper time and, and do some proper work on. So, yeah, I think the, the model lineup is right. Um, and we're, yeah, we're, we're excited about the future. All off road. That's mm -hmm. our DNA. We're not we're not going to go out of our wheelhouse now. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what we know. Um, that's what we're getting good at, yeah. I think. Uh, so yeah, that's what we're going to stick to. And you're demoing a hydrogen vehicle as well. Yeah, so the, the hydrogen vehicle is actually a Grenadier. So our electric vehicle won't be a Grenadier. It's, it's a completely new vehicle. Okay. Um, we're kind of going for, as I say, off-road capability um, in net zero um, fashion, but it's going to be a slightly smaller version. Um, whereas hydrogen for the Grenadier, we think is a really good use case. Um, Grenadier, you know, it's going to be a high workhorse, it's either going to be doing high mileage, it's going to be doing off-road, it's going to be towing. You know, this is a utility vehicle and I think that battery electric for a vehicle like that is going to be quite difficult to, to achieve. Whereas hydrogen, I think, is a really good use case for the Grenadier, you know, when you can actually still have five, six hundred kilometres worth of range. Um, all of the capability of a Grenadier, mm -hmm. nothing compromised at all, but with a, a net zero powertrain. So we're excited about the future of that, but also cognizant of the fact that there isn't really any hydrogen infrastructure. Correct. So I'm not building the car yet, but we're excited to show we can build it, um, that we can do what we set out to do, which is an uncompromised Grenadier. Um, but I think we're going to need some progress on, mm -hmm. on hydrogen um, as a strategy in certain countries. So for our American listeners now, uh, what is the roadmap for America? How many vehicles do you have on the ground? How many do you want to have on the ground? So, I mean, I feel really extremely optimistic about the US. Um, we've got to get it right, so I don't underestimate the challenge in mm -hmm. that. You know, the US is a really discerning customer base generally, and they're not gonna, um, you know, we're gonna have to get our, our service right. We're gonna have to do everything to the best of our ability, which is why we wanna work with the best of the best in terms of dealers. Um, you have 19 dealers in the US and Canada, right? Uh, 21 in the, in the US and Canada, oh, so 21. 19 okay. US to Canada. Okay, all right. And um, yeah, we're, we're really optimistic about the US market as long as we, as we do our jobs. Um, so yeah, we've got our first vehicles landing literally right now, um, which is our first customer vehicles, which is really exciting. Um, and we opened our order books back in May. And actually within the first few weeks, the US shot to the top hmm. of our markets um, by quite some way. And actually probably within four or five weeks, it had kind of really pretty much surpassed the whole of the rest of the world. Wow. And the whole of the rest of the world is also doing quite well. So, um, yeah. and with I think 19 dealers in the US in 14 states, I think we're barely scratching the surface. That really is very much a phase one. Um, phase 1A maybe, you know, we've, we've got a long, a long way to go, a, a decent amount of running room. Super optimistic about the US. After the break, I'll continue my conversation with Ineos Automotive CEO, Lynn Calder. And to see my interview with Lynn from Las Vegas, go to the Cars & Culture YouTube channel, like and subscribe to see more than 125 interviews and a thousand videos. And come back in the following weeks to hear from TV star Rutledge Wood and Genesis boss Claudia Marquez. The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world. In America, the rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars & Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome back to the program. I'm Jason Stein. Now the continuation of my conversation with Ineos Automotive CEO, Lynn Calder. To see my interview with Lynn from Las Vegas, go to the Cars & Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see more than 125 interviews and a thousand videos. So staying on the U.S. for a minute, um, when we talk about uh, where you have those dealerships, where you want to have sales, I'm guessing those are in the so-called smile states. It's in the Californias all the way down to Texas, maybe Florida, and then up the eastern seaboard. Is that right? 
Absolutely. So that's kind of phase 1A, as I said. Yep. Um, and, you know, when we look at our biggest markets right now, California and Texas kind of duke it out every week. Mm. Uh, they're just always kind of much in the kind of like one, two, one, two. Um, and then, yeah, Florida um, and then the sort of tri-state area mm. in New York. But we do have orders from all over, actually, when you look at the heat map of the orders. Midwest. That, yeah, absolutely. Right. And, and bang on in the center as well, yep. up in the northwest. We've actually got some, we've got a dealership up in the Northwest. So yeah, we're kind of pretty coastal um, and that's not going to be the case for, forever. You know, right. that's just, uh, as I say, phase 1A. Um, and, you know, we're not going to hang about either. I think, you know, um, we've got customers that want to be served. Right. So we need to give them a place to go. We need to give them a, a service center that's not, you know, miles and miles and miles from where they live. Uh, we need to make it easy for them to buy a Grenadier. So, um, yeah, you'll see us uh, crop up in, in lots are, more states. How are they finding out about you? Uh, Beyond the back of a Formula One car? I mean. Yeah, um, I mean, I'd say we've been kind of quietly marketing in the U.S. Mm. over the last couple of years just to kind of try and say, you know, we've, we've had a few prototypes and sort of um, early pre-production vehicles mm. in the U.S. for some people to come and try out, certainly dealers, to kind of say, you know, is this something that interests you? And we're really choosing to work with the, the types of people that are, that are kind of like, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that's mm -hmm. really cool. Mm -hmm. I, I want a part of that. I want to be part of that story um, so that we can kind of really work together in partnership. Um, I think we haven't kind of gone really big in terms of marketing in the US because we don't want to do that and then be two years away from delivering vehicles because then you know that's just it's too long a window people forget about you they move on so I think you'll start to see us get a lot noisier now you know we understand we've got a really big job to do on the awareness of our brand um, and we want to get to a point where you know if people are thinking about buying a, a 4x4 um, that we're on the list yeah. and that they come and test drive and that they engage with us as a brand and we still got work to do on that so optimistic about the US really healthy order book but very early days um, and we're gonna we're gonna put our, a lot of effort into it there's an enormous uh, competitive space here as well as, mm. as you likely know having looked into this market mm. You see in the last couple of years that you know Broncos that are being uh, you know uh, retrofitted or you know various companies that are popping up like that that want to offer their own off-road capability most times in an EV format but sometimes in a non-EV format. I'm guessing you're watching that very closely as well because those limited edition limited run vehicles are are just as much a competitor as as anything else that's produced by the mass market brands that are here. Yeah, and I think our, our vehicle, the Grenadier that we're bringing to market right now, I think lends itself to that so well. I mean, there are elements of me that thinks um, with some of the 4x4s out there in all markets, and but certainly including the US, a lot of people buy them and then you know do quite a lot of aftermarket work. They lift them, they put you know different uh, differential locks on them, they put bigger wheels on. Um, lots of options and accessories and there are elements of our vehicle we really are delivering a standard right so you know I, I mean not in our base model but you, we've certainly got the option from a, an OEM to have you know three differential locks center front and rear we've got you know homologated winch which I think is unique I don't think anybody else has homologated their own winch that actually comes as standard with the car if, if you mm -hmm. if you opt for it um, so, you know, I think that we've got certain USPs that, uh, that are on the base model that means you don't have to go to the aftermarket, but there's still lots of cool stuff you can do with, with a vehicle. So we're looking at um, for model year 2025, which would go into production next year, some sort of special vehicle operation lines to do just that. Let's see what cool things we can do with a Grenadier to just sort of take it to that next level on limited runs and just, you know, help kind of um, build that progression of, of the vehicle because, you know, I think we're just at the beginning. It's interesting, you're an ironic maybe, uh, aficionados, off-road aficionados uh, would be gravitating toward the product. Some of those might be G-Wagon customers, mm. correct? It's the other, the other part of your group that's your consortium <laughs> that's here, right? So, yeah, I mean, I don't think I mean, there's, But there's room in America for everybody. There, there is easily room for us in the US, so I, I don't think anyone will be um, you know, over, overly concerned. Um, maybe, maybe one day they, they get concerned and that would be great news for me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think there's room for all of us. And yeah, I think 
One of the things that we, I mean, we talk about the off-road capability of the Grenadier all the time, and one of the things that we talk a little bit less about, which we should do more of, is the on-road feel of the vehicle. And I think that for people that, you know, are going to drop the kids off at school or mm -hmm. go down to the local store, um, I, I think they'll be really pleasantly surprised by the Grenadier. Um, we talked about, about the engine, which is probably one of my favourite components of the car actually because it's just so surprising um, for such a large car and for what people expect when they get into it which is this kind of off-road slightly unwieldy it's none of those things you know when you want to go it goes I saw the video with Lewis Hamilton uh, yeah and, and you know <laughs> the man can drive yes. so um, you know so I, I kind of think that there is for sure a lifestyle market out there for us that's not just the super aficionados the enthusiasts um you know i think they are going to gravitate as you say and i'm sure a lot of our early order book in all regions is is made up of that but i think we're absolutely going to hit some of the higher end markets i think it's going to be a premium vehicle in the sense of you know we have built a really high quality car deliberately so you know we've worked with the best partners um, one of the phrases I heard at a show that we did back in the summer I heard it twice from two different people on two different days where they effectively said gosh there's a lot of car for the money here right um, and and I think that you know that will help us drive into that space um, that really broadens our market from not just people who are going to take it off-road. Probably one of the greatest compliments that uh, Sir, Sir Lewis could have given Sir Jim during that video of, of them driving around was he said that it felt James Bond-like, <laughs> was, was what Lewis said. Um, just go to pricing, $70,000 in the United States? Is that is that where we are? Yeah, I mean, different taxation in different states right. will, will hit that slightly. But yeah, I mean, what we're finding um, in the states, though, is that, I mean, we've got our base model and then we've got really effectively two trim lines. Mm -hmm. um, you can still opt for almost any configuration you want. We don't kind of um, prescribe, really. But the, the principal thing is, you know, and we've kind of named it after our Bellstaff, our fashion brand, uh, iconic jackets. Uh, one is the Fieldmaster and one is the Trialmaster. And the Trialmaster is very much the off-road. Um, you know, it's going to give you your three differential locks. Um, and, and the Fieldmaster is a bit more, you know, heated seats and, you know, leather upholstery and just a bit more comfort. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that what we're seeing in the US for sure is I think m more than 90% of our orders are trim level, not basic model. So people are spending more than the $70,000, but we still think it's an incredibly competitive price point for what we've built. Um, one of the things that I regret in a way from how we kind of started our brand in the very beginning, and it's not anyone's fault, it's just an evolution, is that you know we talked about building a farmer's car um, and that had with it the connotations of what pricing was gonna be because you know, people who are going to really work the land want a car that's going to go on for, for decades, which I believe ours will, um, but they don't want to buy a luxury car for that. They'll maybe buy a luxury car for their car, but they, they don't mm. want to use that for the utility of the land. And, you know, I think what we set out to build and, and therefore the price connotation is not what we actually built. And so we then had to take people on that journey with us rather than, you know, be a bit clearer from the beginning. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, now we're in the situation where I think we would agree there's a lot of car for the money. Yeah, there's a lot of car for the money for sure. And some of those other one-off vehicles we discussed earlier go for well above six figures, yeah. which is clearly not, not where we are here. And by the way, even at $70,000 or so, in America these days, uh, you're, you're edging actually close to average transaction prices. Mm. I mean, this is where some, it's not hard to get to $70,000 with most vehicles in the United States these days mm. with average transaction prices. Are you seeing vehicles already being flipped, the, the ones that have gone to consumers? Yeah, not, not too many. We've seen a handful okay. um, in, the, in the early days, actually, and it was predominantly, I mean, people who hadn't even driven them, they were flipping them effectively to help people skip the queue yeah. um you know we we had um a, a slower ramp up than than we would have liked we can talk about that uh, because you know we're, we're coming out of that in a really good way at the moment actually really really pleased with our ramp up at the moment 
Um, but yeah, we we had quite a long wait, waiting list. Uh, not as long as I think what you would wait for a G-Wagon at the moment, but we right. had quite a long waiting list. So I think, yeah, there were a few people benefited from uh, being able to flip and, and help people also jump not, the line. not the markup of a G-Wagon either. A year ago, I was in a Mercedes store in the the sticker that was on the G-Wagon was $100,000 higher than the list price of the yeah. G-Wagon. And they were getting it, by the way, at that time. Um, let's, I guess, discuss the ramp-up piece of this. Um, one of the things I'm guessing you've had to learn in your new journey is supply chain issues, which has haunted the industry for the last three years. Are yeah. you through those now? Y yes. Uh, well, you know, mainly, yes. Yeah. I think we have, um, you know, always the really close quarters management of the supply chain. You literally can't take your, your eye off it for a second. You know, we've got sort of 2,400 components in this vehicle, <laughs> um, which is... Slightly more complicated than petrochemicals. <laughs> it's, uh, and, and that's exactly the point, Jason. Yeah. You're exactly right. You know, I think that, you know, we, we've uh, managed in INEOS and I've managed in my career a great many different types of supply chain, none of them like this. Um, <laughs> so that's been, I think, the biggest learning for me, the biggest learning for INEOS as a whole, for sure, just the, the, the absolute level of complexity at a really difficult time that was really marred by, by COVID. And I think that we're definitely coming out of the COVID constraints, but the day-to-day -day management of those 2,400 components from 200 suppliers, 400 factories, supplier factories feed into our factory, which means they've all got to be running like clockwork for years to be running like clockwork. And, you know, the, the, the really, as I say, close quarters management of that is, is you know, it's never going to be uh, an easy, easy job. Um, so, you know, yeah, it takes up a lot of our, our time and effort, but I feel that we're in a really good place um, at the moment. I should find some wood to touch. Um, because, you know, uh, you know, never be complacent about your supply chain. Well, and I think COVID really taught us, too, that um, a tier three supplier or, or, or lower, the smallest part, can set off a chain reaction that, that hampers the entire system. So the health of your supply base. Have you become a great purchasing boss then, to some extent, too? <laughs> Have you built good relationships with suppliers to make sure that you're... It's getting better. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say that job is done. And, right. you know, obviously we're outsourcing at the moment for our battery electric vehicle. And that means that we're, you know, two things. We're starting to be able to leverage because we've, we're going to have more volume. Um, and, and the other thing is, I think, you know, just a little bit more credibility in the market. I think I, I wasn't around when we started to, to try and build the, the first prototype vehicle and then our, our kind of pre-production vehicles and into our series vehicles. Um, I did join, you know, uh, at the time of our, our start of production last year. I can only imagine phoning up BMW and saying, can we buy an engine, please? And they're kind of, you know, sorry, who, who are you? Um, I think there were lots of really difficult conversations at that time because it was in the middle of COVID. Everyone was really up against it and, you know, taking a risk on a brand new startup. And, you know, we're not the only new startup, but there aren't that many that survive. Um, and I think suppliers are, are very aware of that um, and don't want to waste their time and, and, and capacity on, on people who are not going to be around. So I think it's changing, but, you know, we're, we're not there yet. Um, getting better all the time, but we still need to work on really building long-term relationships with our suppliers. This show is called Cars and Culture, and, I, and we're not just talking about the cars of it, but the cultural piece of this. What kind of culture are you building on the automotive side? So I think trying to marry, as I said earlier, a little bit of the INEOS culture into a, a business that INEOS is having to learn. And I think for me, that is, um, you know, I want us to be the kind of business that people really get a buzz out of being in every day. And, you know, I think 95% of the time for 95% of the people, that is true. Um, you know, we're all here because we're extremely passionate about what we're doing. And I see that thread through the organization the whole time. It's what, what some of my people are doing is just absolutely incredible. Um, sometimes superhuman, to be quite honest, um, in terms of the amount of effort that they put in. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, I, I think I, I stretch that sometimes because, you know, that, that sort of desire to be the kind of business where people just love coming in and, and, and really working towards something great and unique. Because not only are we building a car, 
and then another one, and then developing our third, we're building a business from scratch, which means all of the systems, all of the processes, all of the policies, all of the things that many, many mature businesses, including businesses in Ineos, take for granted. And that is a, an immense pressure on, on my people every day. Um, and, and, and I suppose the only thing I'd add to that is then I, I want us to be high performance. So, you know, we're, we're here at Formula One. I want us to, to look at the, the, the likes of a high performing sports team and say, I want to be that. Good is not enough. We've got to be the best. We've got to be great. We've got to strive every single day. And that's the kind of people I want around me. Um, I want us to be safe. I think Ineos is doing quite a good job at the moment of bringing its chemical safety culture into automotive, which we think is really important. It's something we can definitely bring to the table. And I want us to be profitable so that we can be around for decades to come right. and proud of what we've achieved and have everyone still having their jobs and enjoying coming into work every day. Two final things, um, more on the cultural side. You just returned from a rather interesting uh, overseas trip being immersed not only in the culture, but in the vehicle. Yeah. Tell me about your time in, um, was it in Mumbai? Uh, no, we were in Africa, actually. Oh, we um, And it was epic, Jason. One of the best things I've done, actually. So we started um, in uh, Kruger in South Africa, so northeast of South Africa. We skirted along the Zimbabwe border for a while, uh, moving, moving westwards um, into Botswana, and then we crossed Botswana. We kind you of were with Sir, Sir Jim. Sir Jim, yes. Correct. So actually, Sir Jim, uh, Andy Curry, one of the other owners of Ineos, uh, our chairman of Ineos Automotive, Ashley Reid, uh, George Ratcliffe, our commercial director, and myself. So five grenadiers, um, and we had uh, a couple of our um, South African uh, colleagues as, as well, helping us uh, stay out of trouble, really. Um, and we just had an epic time because we threw everything at the vehicles. Um, you know, it was a real mix of mountainous, rocky uh, into proper sand rallying into crossing a massive salt pan which is you know crust and then mud which is very prone to lots of vehicles sinking and in fact our guide on on that particular part of the trip had kind of said um if it had not been grenadiers he probably wouldn't have taken five cars across there at that time of year it was it was wow. pretty dangerous and the grenadier didn't blink an eye all the way through to the final day, you know, doing some pretty serious wading. So, you know, we, we tested every facet of the vehicle. It was eight days, I think about 17, 17 or 1800 kilometers. Um, <laughs> and the, the vehicles were a dream, genuinely. You know, it's kind of, we didn't have a single mechanical, we didn't even have a flat tire. And, you know, we really, really tried to break these cars. Um, I had an absolute bowl. Um, really, the, the countries that we passed through, I love anyway. It was absolutely spectacular. But the vehicle, the Grenadier, was the star of the show. And who says you're not a car gal after all, right? <laughs> I mean, 1,800 kilometers. And, uh, the second thing and uh, final thing, uh, the relationship that you have here with the Mercedes-Benz team and Sir Lewis Hamilton. What has that been like to, to be immersed in that kind of culture too with them? Yeah, I think, I mean, I kind of alluded to it a minute ago. I think like really observing um, such a high performance team in, in close quarters um, and seeing how they strive every day, seeing how they carry themselves. You know, it's easy to win all the time. Um, I assume if you are, if you have the, the technology and the talent, which the team has in spades. Um, I think when that starts, and, and you know, it's very difficult for teams to stay at that level. You know, there's a life cycle of, 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 of teams. And I think to watch them in adversity is actually been even more interesting for me to see how they carry themselves, to see how they just never give up for a second. And, and you know, they will win again because of that. Um, and, you know, that's really inspiring for, for my business. Total Wolf delivered an exceptional interview on this program back about two years ago and really talked about a culture of winning and, and breaking down when, when the team is not winning, trying to really understand how to achieve greatness mm -hmm. again when it is winning breaking it down and try to replicate that kind of excellence. And I'm guessing it just blends over and, and, and uh, you have the same sort of values that, that you pursue with what you're doing. 
it's one of the really cool things about having about Ineos having the sports partnerships yeah. um, and the sports focus that it does. I mean, we had a session uh, just last week actually, where we kind of gather all of the CEOs of all of the Ineos businesses together and. Um, our kind of sporting director, Sir Dave Brailsford, who's famous for being um, Team Sky, as it was now the Ineos Grenadiers, to you know many, many, many Grand Tour wins, including the Tour de France, um, as well as you know the national cycling team at the Olympics. Um, and he is sporting director across all of Ineos Sport, so he is really working hard to cross fertilise everything from the different teams at the moment and foster that winning culture and. He was talking about exactly the, the, the same point, about this kind of life cycle of a team and how you dissect every single part of it. And I think we're so lucky in Ineos mm. to have people like that, yeah. whether it's Toto or whether it's Dave or whether it's Lewis um, and a great many others um, that you know, really bring that winning mindset to us. I think Ineos had that anyway. It's quite a nice marriage, but it's, it's super inspiring for people that just never give up until they until they reach the top and you know that really resonates with me I don't want us to be in the B leagues you know I want us to be the best we can be and we'll keep dissecting everything to, to try and get there. Well, you're in the A leagues here in Las Vegas welcome to Las Vegas thank you for being on the program thanks for telling the story of Ineos and uh, we wish you all the best of luck in the future Lynn. Thank you Jason thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks again to my guest today, Ineos Automotive CEO, Lynn Calder. To see my interview with Lynn from Las Vegas, go to the Cars & Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see more than 125 interviews and 1,000 videos. I'm Jason Stein. We'll see you down the road. Do you have concerns about your heart health? Yeah. We've got a doc for that. Huh. Have questions about men's health, women's health, and everyday health? Sure. We've got a doc for that. Really? Interested in improving your exercise and eating routine? Yeah. We've got a doc for that. Hmm. A nurse practitioner and a registered dietitian, too. Wow. Sirius XM's Doctor Radio. Your access to top doctors and health professionals every day. No copay, no appointment necessary. Huh. Sirius XM 110. Who knew? If you're a Springsteen fan, you just found the promised land. Hear rare interviews and performances. Live concerts. Is there anybody alive out there? Celebrity guest DJs. This is Rob Lowe. Hey, baby, it's little Steven here. And more exclusives when listening to Bruce Springsteen's channel. Welcome, Bruce Springsteen, to E Street Radio, your home away from home. Great to be here. E Street Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 20. Hey, this is Karen Hunter, and at Urban View, we have a family of tough people. We are about making change. Who are willing to not just work, but to have a vision. We demand that the people take action. Use their power to make change. That's what really Urban View and the Madison Show is all about. We invite you and we challenge you to create the world you want to live in. It's not your typical talk channel. Urban View, Sirius XM 126. Hi, I'm Janet Alvarez, the host of The Business Briefing on Sirius XM Business Radio Channel 132. Every weekday at 9 a.m. East, with opinions from the newsmakers, thought leaders, and executives that matter most. To discuss what's driving markets and can help you make the best decisions for your own investment choices. Find out how the latest happenings will impact the economy, the markets, your bottom line, and your wallet. The Business Briefing. Every weekday morning at 9 a.m. East on Business Radio Channel 132. Or listen on the Sirius XM app. Join acclaimed craft beer brewer Jonathan Wakefield for the Beer Hour. Listen in as Jonathan and his co-host Maria Cabre explore the intersection of craft beer and popular culture with brewers and beer enthusiasts. Friday at 7 p.m. East on Sirius XM Business Radio Channel 132.